0: Yeah, it'll I'm gonna do I'm going to open this window, and I just think it's brilliant. Um <laughs> So there's just, like, a look of resignation on oh, my Okay. <laughs> At least yeah, your back You're going to try to open it now. Because it seems like it's open. like, what is this? It concerns me. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This, like, concerns me. I'm afraid something dramatic would happen. <laughs> but I guess it's... Fine.
1: I think bugs will come in. But not yet. Not till summer school. Okay, so you guys want to talk about The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? All right, what'd you think? How does it fit in with everything we've
2: done? I didn't read... I read the 1834 version my first
3: time a while ago, and for this class I read the earlier one. The 17... yeah. Were we supposed to read the earlier one? It doesn't matter. Uh I mean, Uh
1: they are... (laughs) No, they're not different, they just have two different names, (laughs) because... (laughs)
3: Are they very different?
1: What do you think? Are they very different?
3: Yeah. Well, the moments that
2: I definitely remembered differently.
1: Like what? So if now. you... The Norton has them on facing pages. Yeah. Um, those of you who actually bought the required books. Um, sick burn, right, Wade? I said I did
3: last semester. I didn't last semester either, but I ended up spending more money printing all of the checks last semester than I would have at the bookstore probably.
1: Yeah, well, there's that also. We used all the books last semester. Yeah, we did. There's nothing wrong with buying those books. What?
3: There's so little space on my desk for all these books. (laughs) That's honestly the biggest
1: part of my decision. Oh, my God. All right. Scholarship. That's great. Think about what Nick Halmy was doing, all the the books that must have been on his desk while he was writing these footnotes. it's good to have to be surrounded by books. Yeah, they protect you in earthquakes.
3: Yeah, like your office. Yeah. yeah.
1: Actually, if you live in the Bay Area, you can't. We lived there for a year, and one thing: um, Do you live in an earthquake zone? Earthquake. Yeah. I have never experienced. You've never experienced an earthquake. Yeah. In they have them all the time in San Francisco, and if you live there, you can't put bookshelves near your bed, because they could kill you, yeah. and... What? Yeah. You also
2: can't hang pictures like, over your bed, yeah. it, unless you have like special things, because it might
1: fall. Yeah, you have, to, you have to decide where you're gonna put things based on the fact that they might be knocked off the shelves that they're on uh, at three in the morning while you're asleep. What? So you can't put like jars or pottery or anything oh, like shit. that over overhead where someone might be not alert. That's crazy. <laughs> I think it's weird that people don't do that. <laughs> you really? You mean you walk into dorm rooms like, well, here and yeah, people, people are like. Walk the and they have like heavy objects on a shelf that's like right over where their head is. And I'm like, You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's. It's, it's, it's interesting. All right. <laughs> um, so the. So Coleridge first wrote The Roman Ancient Mariner early on in 1798. Remember the deal with lyrical ballads that Wordsworth was going to write the natural ones, those that didn't have any supernatural elements, and Coleridge was going to write those that did have supernatural elements. And part of the idea was that um, they wouldn't be that different from each other, that the supernatural and the natural would ultimately be about um, how the human mind responds to experiences of great intensity, and it's very easy to make the experience an experience of great intensity if it's a supernatural one, but the it's still the mind's response and not the um, the the supernatural story itself that matters. You look like you want to say something. No, no. This is just the look of the day, apparently. Okay, Um, you're almost at the top of the hill. You're almost at the top of the hill of recovery, Mm -hmm. but the problem is you then have to recover from laboring up the hill of recovery. Mm -hmm. This is why we're mortal. Mm -hmm. Okay. What? (laughs) Maybe that was a quick jump, but but so is life. All right. So um, <laughs> one way um, you can think about that, or let me, let me put this as a question. I'll put this as a question. No, I'll put it as a question right now. Um, if you think of it this way, that is that what Wordsworth and Coleridge are interested in is how the mind reacts to um, intensity of experience, And for them, you know, for for a horror movie, let's say, for a scary story, for, you know, if you take Poe as an example, which some of you have done earlier, or if you take The Shining, which is showing tonight in Somerville, as an example, the um, experience is one where we're just completely um, engrossed in our own fear about what's going to happen next. And that's what horror stories are about and what some ballads are about. That is, you know, you, you find out that the mother has got her son to kill his father and that um, there's the punchline and that's really scary. And that discovery is just one where we feel fear. and Or horror, if horror is not quite the same thing as fear. If you try to define horror, it has some combination of fear repugnance and also fascination that all three of those things somehow go together which is why the horror film or, or horror novels are so interesting there's also like I think some sublime some sublimity in horror right? in what sense? say more
3: like um, like if, when I watch like a really scary part of a movie like there's the, re- there's the relief from horror that comes after Yeah, it. when it's over. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Or when you turn it off. That can, <laughs> that can be a real pleasure. Did I tell you guys about seeing Repulsion? The So, at the time, it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. Um, I was in college, it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. Uh, Roman Polanski, uh, back before we knew about him. Um... And this is a movie made in the late 60s. And it's just amazingly scary. And we went into the, um, to the uh, auditorium where they were showing it. And it was packed. It was full. And this was when we didn't watch movies on DVD because DVDs hadn't been invented. Um, and every time something scary happened, people would shriek. And... of the audience or 5% of the audience would leave because it was just too much for them and um, finally by the end there were like 300 people there at the start and with about 10 minutes left there were about 14 of us left because it was so scary and after one particularly scary moment this one guy um, leaves and you know this is a large it's a a lecture room they're showing the movies in lecture rooms Um, there weren't dedicated theaters then So this guy leaves, and as he gets to the door to leave the lecture hall, he turns around while we're just sitting there, you know, paralyzed with fear about what's going on on screen. He turns around, and he says, Why are you doing this to yourselves? Why? Why? This is crazy. Leave. And then he left. Um, And we just wanted him to get out so we could be just riveted by our own fear a little bit more. Um... It was like, if we weren't going to pay enough attention, something even more terrible might happen. So we really had to pay attention. It's like when you're in the um, passenger seat and you really have to pay attention to how badly the person is driving because the more tense you are, yeah, California people know this really well when they come east yeah. and they see what people drive like in Boston. Um,
2: I was just thinking people like driving in California hills and they take the turns way too fast. And it's like, yeah. if I lean this way, will keep us from falling right. off the Right, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> But if I'm not paying total attention to how badly this turn is being negotiated, we'll fall off the cliff. So we feel, feel that way about horror movies. Um, so that's not really what happens in the kinds of even supernatural ballads that, that Coleridge is writing. And not really the kind that it, it may be happening in something like the Trois Cobris or in Lord Randall. Um, but it's not what's happening in, in theirs. What's happening with them is that they are, you could say, interested in what, uh, in how human psychology works and what a psychological response to great stress is. And the stress itself is easy to produce if you make it something supernatural. That is that if you make it um, this terrible punishment for shooting the albatross or that you are the person who um, is one in the gambling um, between death and life and death. And um, so you can go straight to the situation by having some horrific event or some horrible event. And then you do an analysis of what a, recognizably, what, what a recognizably human response would be to that sort of thing. And the recognizably human response is, you could say what we get in The Mariner and what we get in something like We Are Seven. That is that there's, it, there's something, or A Slumber to My Spirit Seals, something really intense happens and then a human being responds to that intensity. And so, although Wordsworth was determined, he wasn't going to be writing supernatural poetry. I know some of you read Michael, and you may remember that in Michael, I mean, you were supposed to have read it. Uh, you may remember that in Michael, it sounds like there's something supernatural going on underground, but then it gets explained away. It, it turns out to be a natural phenomenon that, um, before it's explained, seems to be supernatural, but it isn't. Um, but it doesn't matter whether it is or it isn't, except that, except in terms of plot. So Wordsworth and Coleridge agree that Coleridge will write the, superna- the, the poems that have supernatural plots, and, like Christabel or The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, and Wordsworth will write poems that have natural plots. But in both cases, they're interested in how the human mind Responds to those things. Um, why do you think Wordsworth didn't want to write supernatural poems? Why do you think it mattered to him? Yeah. Um,
0: what is the what is the supernatural phenomenon in Michael?
1: There's the 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 um, uh, hammering that they hear. When when is that? It's the, it, it's a it's a it's a short scene, okay. but there, but he he. Um, It sounds like it's punishment, um, some sort of punishment. I'm not going to find it now because it's too long.
0: No, I'm just curious because I remember you mentioned that before. Yeah. So I reread it. I still couldn't find it. Okay. But I can figure it out later.
1: All right. Well, we'll take a break and I'll look for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the um, why do you think Wordsworth doesn't want supernatural elements in his poetry?
3: Because the natural world is already super is already supernatural.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think that's a good answer. That the that if you have supernatural elements, it, they can be very distracting. And if the natural world already has these um, figures that do not live like living men, and um, if there is this aspect to the natural world that. Um, you don't have the response that you have to the supernatural because you're not actually being sufficiently alert to the natural world. And so if there is the idea that... So there are two things that are happening. There's the response, which is what they're both very interested in charting. Both Wordsworth and Coleridge are interested in charting the response. And there is the thing being responded to. And for Coleridge, the thing being responded to is supernatural. For Wordsworth, the thing being responded to is natural. And if the response to something natural is the way Wordsworth describes it, then it turns out that the natural, as Nicole just says, is itself um, does supplies everything that you think you have to go to the supernatural to get. Um, It turns out nature is as weird as any supernatural phenomenon. Um, That nature, and weirder and stranger and harder to, to, to deal with. Whereas the supernatural phenomena are not something we have to worry about in our own lives when we read horror poems, horror ballads, horror stories. And therefore we can distance ourselves from them a little bit. So it's easier to do it with the supernatural, but it may be a little bit misleading, although the essential thing is the psychological description. Um, Freud, I think I mentioned this before, has a great essay on the uncanny. Yeah, we did talk about this. Um, And the uncanny for Freud is the one way of describing his definition of the uncanny, or his analysis of the uncanny, is to say, that the uncanny is when you ascribe an experience which comes from the real world and from your own life and from the actual way that the human mind exists in the world, when you want to ascribe that to something not of this world in a way as, in a, as a kind of way of distancing yourself from it so that the uncanny becomes something that is um, haunting you. But if if you call it the uncanny, then you don't have to think that it is something that haunts you from deep within. But it does haunt you from deep within. And so what Freud is interested in is the idea that the uncanny is what comes from what is most familiar to us, Rather than least familiar to us, what he's, int- I mean, the, just just to give you a, a flavor of how he argues this, it's something like the fact that dolls are the most uncanny things. Like if you're seeing a preview for a horror movie and you see a doll, you know it's going to be scary, right? But yeah. if you go to a toy store and you see a doll, it's a doll. So why are dolls immediately scary, even if they do nothing? And it has, and that is what's interesting to Freud that. It is the things that are most familiar to us, most just part of the familiar accoutrements of childhood, that start seeming to be the things that are most available for fear and horror and creepiness. And, you know, the, the essay might be called The Creepy. That is, The Creepy, meaning that it's really, it gets really close to you and you don't even notice it until you do. And so I think that that's a way of, of, of lumping Coleridge and Wordsworth as opposed to splitting them, that they're both interested in an experience which you can evoke through the supernatural or through the natural because the supernatural is just a way of trying to push it away a little bit by saying it's the supernatural. But what you're trying to push away is something that you recognize needs pushing away because it's so close to you. Okay, so in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the who would be the person in that poem having a Wordsworthian experience rather than um, a supernatural experience? Obviously, the ancient mariner is having the supernatural experience. So the wedding guest. Yeah, the wedding guest is just, he's off to the wedding, and suddenly he's accosted by this very strange man, and that's what happens in many Wordsworth poems. That is, the Wordsworth speaker will meet and accost or be accosted by some strange figure. You know, think of the thorn, think of um, um, any number of um, his poems, think of Resolution and Independence. And it is the strangeness of the figure that leads Wordsworth to the kind of thinking that he does. And the, and that's what's happening to the wedding guest. So the wedding guest obviously is not the central focus of the poem. It's the mariner. But the wedding guest in relation to the mariner is not that unlike Wordsworth, even in relation to the little girl in We Are Seven, or Wordsworth in relation to Matthew or something like that. So again, it's the same if you ask yourself, why is the wedding guest in the poem? Maybe that's a way of asking the question. Why is the wedding guest in the poem? Why can't the poem be told simply as narrative? Why do you need the ancient Mariner stoppeth one of three? Why can't it just begin, there was a ship and here's what happened. Why can't it simply be the mariner's story without an audience to that story? And how would it be different if it were the Mariner's story without an audience? It would be so much worse. Why? I agree I agree it would be so much worse. Um, I,
2: I love that part of the curse is that he must tell the story. Yeah. So the poem becomes exactly what the curse is. is that it's it's the recounting of the story that he had to tell yeah. because of the curse. And the poor wedding guest who, who would have had no part in it if it weren't for this curse is changed forever. He wakes up Tomorrow, a different person. A sadder and a wiser man. And that's yes. just like what what poetry can do to you. Yeah. And it's just, that's, that's for me, that's where
1: the poem is. It's not in yeah. the poem. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and why does the Mariner, why that one of three? He stopped with one of three. Why that one? Mm. You know, there's a... Famous baseball riddle. It's about how is a particularly awful shortstop like The Ancient Mariner? He stopped with one of three.
3: Oh, I like that. (laughs) Good. I'm glad.
1: (laughs) So why did the other two get to get off scot free?
0: kinship. And it is it his
1: immediate relation to the bride? I don't think so. You mean when he says I am next of kin? Yeah. Yeah, that could be um, part of it. That is that by being next of kin there's a sense in which he is representative of the whole family and therefore maybe of whole so- the whole society. But I'm not sure that the Mariner would have known that. Is it because of the gray beard and glittering eye? Well, but the gray beard and glittering eye is there no matter what. <coughs> he says, he, so he asked the question. By that long why gray do you stop me? Yeah, now, wherefore what stops thou me? Uh, yeah. And his answer is, there was a ship. So that doesn't really help. Um, are there any kin on the ship, by the way? To the mariner? Would I be asking that if there the is. answer were no? No, there aren't. <laughs> and did anyone notice? Was uh, is there a woman in disguise on the ship? No, I <laughs> just thought I'd ask. Uh, a good yeah, um, yeah. His um, brother's son is on the ship. Um, so one of the people whose death he is responsible for is he responsible? is his brother's son. You know, one question you can ask is, what about all the other sailors? What about all the people who die? Were they, did they deserve to die or not? The mariner deserves to be punished, but do they deserve to die? Let's think about it in those terms for for a minute. Um, Any of you have fear of flying? Ever? Oh, fear of going
3: on a plane? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. That kind of flying, yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. As opposed to jumping off a tall building and clapping your wings, which is fine. Um, So, none of you ever feel like, well, I've taken all these plane trips and it's all been fine, but I'm due. So, I should worry.
3: Maybe a little bit sometimes. There's like a second where I think about that, but then I kind of just... Yeah, me too. There's, on every minute, maybe there's like like a minute when I think about it, yeah.
1: And of course, you all know that, that what happens in the past doesn't affect the probability in the present. Yeah. That the fact that the coin came up heads three times in a row doesn't affect the likelihood of its coming up heads or tails a fourth time. Yeah. Unless you're a Bayesian, in which case it affects it slightly. So the um, so it's really hard not to think that way. That um, just because we have two we have basically two intuitions about um random events. And one is if they're random, it's not going to keep coming up heads forever. And um, also that things are not random, that's a way that that's a way that we understand randomness as non-randomness. So if you're flipping a coin and it comes up heads like in Rosencrantz Golden Stern or Dead, it comes up heads 157 times in a row or something like that. Um, But if you're flipping a coin and it comes up heads several times in a row, you will say to yourself, if if you know the truth, that that there's no reason to bet on heads the next time, because it's still 50-50. However, there's no reason not to bet on heads the next time either. But what most people will think is, okay, it's come up heads eight times in a row, And that doesn't mean that it's going to come up heads again. It means that we're really due for tails. And because I know that it's random and eight times in a row is really unlikely, so a ninth time is going to be more unlikely still. And we have totally confused. By making that argument that it's due for tails, we're using the claim that it's random to make a claim that it isn't. That there's a greater likelihood of tails now than there was before. And there isn't. Right? Does this make sense to people? Yes. This is the math part of this course. This is why it counts for quantitative reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> so. we you I already, I already my did my course evaluation, but I would have
3: checked. I checked not applicable. <laughs> <for the quantitative laughs> I review. haven't done the course evals yet. Yeah. So do it,
2: doesn't, it, it
1: doesn't apply.
0: <laughs>
2: Alas. last I go, it improved, improved my quantitative
1: reasoning. Right. So, so that idea, but just, just, it's an interesting fact about the way, about how badly humans are designed to think about probability, is that even if we know something is random, that will make us think that it's going to be deterministic the other way. From um, We overreact to its randomness by, making, by redeterminizing it the other way. So what's helpful, if you ever get anxiety about plane flights, is that if you get into an airplane, And you think to yourself, my God, it's my birthday, and the date is 7-7, or no, uh, I don't know, 7-27-27, so it's, it's, it's July 27th, 2027, and it's also your birthday, and you're turning 27 years old on July 7th, 2027, you might think to yourself, you know, wouldn't that be ironic? After all these plane flights and after the 727 flights I've already taken, or this is my 727th flight and it's occurring in a Boeing 727, um, maybe it would be stupid for me to get on this plane because I'm due, right? You can imagine thinking Have you like seen that? seen the show Vinyl? No, I've heard HBO, about it. Yeah, yeah. then it
2: yeah. got cancelled at one season, but there's a great bit at the end where he just sees his number everywhere. And it's a like uh-huh. big revelation that, that he makes a big bet on this number i win. think it was spoiled. Oh shoot! All right. You gotta, you gotta. Even though it gets canceled, it's still worth it.
1: Okay. So, okay, but you you can imagine things like that where you're either du- you're due for something because because uh, this is all all this strange coincidence. So, then you might be nervous about getting into a flight, getting into a plane, um, and you might say, well, ironically enough you can imagine the headline, ironically enough, or you can imagine the first sentence of your obituary. Or the Uh, epitaph. Or the epitaph, right. (laughs) Um, But what can be helpful is to think, okay, so there's, um, see that family with that screaming baby over there on the plane? It's that baby's first plane flight. So from the baby's point of view, it's like the baby's not due. If there's a one in ten million chance that a plane is going to go down, which is roughly I see what it is. You're that now. Sorry. Cool. I see. I see. you are getting it
3: now. Oh, I like it. <laughs>
1: well, it is actually a helpful thing. If you if you have phobias like that, it's a helpful thing. But if you realize that someone else is in the same boat, but that they don't have the same um, history, and therefore they're not due to be killed in a plane crash. Um, they are as legitimately entitled um, to think of themselves as not due as you're entitled to think of yourself as due. And since your fates are alike, um, that's a a good way to realize that um, you're in no more danger than someone who's never flown before. And um, therefore, you can treat yourself as taking this flight as though you've never taken flights before, as though you hadn't dodged... um, Plane-shaped bullets before, and um, I think that can be helpful. So where am I going with this, with respect to? So, the, why everyone else on the ship has to die?
2: Why are they due to, right. to die, even though it's the
1: mariner's mistake for shooting nail? Yeah. So, and that's so the question then is: Here is an intense first-person experience, and from the point of view of the Mariner, he's like the person getting into the plane on July 27th, Um, but from the point of view of the other sailors, they're just sailors, and so why should they go through what they're going through when the only person responsible for all this, or is it so? Has Coleridge um, um, managed to make sense of this, but the person who's responsible for this and for whom, for whom the experience seems designed is the mariner. For whom the experience is designed because Coleridge designed it for him but within the world of the poem the the person for whom the experience seems designed is the mariner but what about everyone else? Is that an issue in the poem? Does Coleridge think about that? Should he be thinking about that? Does he want us to wonder that?
2: Well, if the goal goal is not to punish the Mariner, but to teach the Mariner something, like the Albatross wasn't due.
1: Yes, exactly. But
0: like if
2: the Mariner, Yeah. yeah, they just kill the Mariner like for killing the Albatross, then that's just like crime punishment. Right. But then like if he sees like other people who are not due meet their deadline... I don't know. Uh, yeah, then, no, 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 that's no
1: right. It. Yeah, That's then, exactly right. Then
2: he learns.
1: Yeah, but seems like a kind of um, unfair way to teach. It's like, Olivia, your paper is late. Max's paper is late. You want that to happen to you? And her paper is on time, but I just want you to learn the lesson. Wait, what?
3: I don't get it.
1: So... Don't <laughs> oh, I get late. it.
3: Now that I connected okay. it to this, I get it. So <laughs> her paper's late, you punish someone else.
1: Whose paper was also late. Whose
3: paper was also late for her to learn. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, so
2: then the Mariner goes and talks about his story to other people. Right. And then he, like, more people are being taught on like a like, So it's balance. okay?
0: No, but like, <laughs> if we're talking about like
1: balance of the universe, I don't know. Okay, so, so millions of people read the poem because the wedding guest writes it down because the wedding guest is Coleridge.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, so do, do we agree the wedding guest is Coleridge? Yeah. I think he could be. He's the one who hears the story and, and changes and is changed by it. So you could at least imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't we just say the wedding guest was
3: words for it?
1: yeah, but that was um that was a little bit of a joke. Um a joke? A little bit. It's not really Wordsworth. Okay. It's it's the relationship of the wedding guest to the mariner is like the relationship of Wordsworth to the um strange figures that he meets. Oh that's okay. certainly the case. Okay. But the um if you ask how which you which you're entitled to ask for ballads. I think in fact it's it's very much a question you're entitled to ask for ballads. How do ballads come into the world? That is where what is the relationship of a ballad to the story that it tells? And the the answer is what? What is the relation of a ballad to the story that it tells? Just imagine we. I mean we talked about this a little bit, but um, you know take the trois. Corby's or take Lord Grandall or, t- or take the ballad of Sir Patrick Spence just take any ballad and ask yourself, just give a rational speculation as to how that ballad came into the world
3: People observed something that was happening and decided to tell the story of it
2: okay. or
3: people told the story and it
2: gradually through time got more and more
1: exaggerated yeah. until became a supernatural event. Yeah, so there isn't an inventor of a ballad. Ballads don't have authors. That's the crucial thing about a ballad. Or a ballad does not have an author. Ballads are things that snowball and they follow a, a sort of memetic um, evolution. That is, someone tells a story about someone about something that she's seen or heard or that someone else told her about and she'd seen a little bit about and in telling the story, um, she produces some rhythmic um, sentence or, and then there was a witch there who said a spell, that's what I heard, and then the spell gets rhythmical and what happens is that the moments in the ballad that are powerful are the ones that get remembered and that get repeated um, in the next iteration of the ballad and then a rhyme comes about randomly and um, then people start thinking oh yes it was a, it's a ballad because they remember a rhyme I barely remember it but how did it go and then they come up with another rhyme I mean you can't actually see it happening but you can see how it would happen how things if you just think of actually I think this Used to happen all the time when people got to college. Um, it may not anymore. What with with uh, the worldwide expansion of, of um, social contacts, but it used to be the case that you get to college and all sorts of like counting rhymes that you knew when you were a kid. Um, you would do a counting rhyme with someone else. You know who's who's going to deal the the deck of cards? So you'd say, "Eeny, meeny, miny, moe," and right? Does everyone know "Eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Yeah, there are variations between yeah. the two. And the variations used to be very strongly geographical. So someone from California would have a different version of it um, from someone in New York. And um, we used to do, so see if this is all familiar to you, engine, engine number nine, coming Mm -hmm. down Chicago, sad as go. I said no. Oh, no one's heard that? Engine, engine number nine, coming down Chicago line. Is this familiar? Yeah, but I don't know it. Okay, if the train goes off the track. I haven't thought about this for a long time. If the train goes off the track, do you want your money back? And so then um, the point about that is you it point you point to someone, they say yes or no. And if they say no, then there are only two syllable. So then you say um, no, so N-O spells no, so you are not it. And then you keep doing it again. Um, uh. So, that's how I learned it in New York, but when I got to college, people had different versions of it. It was clearly engine engine number nine, um, but it wasn't Chicago line, and it wasn't um, if the train goes off the track, but if the train runs off the track, things like that. So, that these variations, then you hear a variation, you have a variation that you have yourself, or you misremember it, which is how variations come up, and so... Slowly, the, mo- the most powerful versions of the ballads are the ones that get most remembered. And part of what's powerful about a ballad is that they don't have an author, that they are a product somehow of language itself or of language and time, and language and the passage of time and the obsessive nature or the obsessing nature of the story. So when we talk about lyrics, this is what we talked about um, at the beginning of this class, when we talk about lyrics, we talk about the speaker of the lyric. Lyrics are very intense expressions of a single person's experience, but when we talk about ballads, we're talking about the exact opposite of that. We're talking about not only speakerless works, works that don't have a speaker, but works that don't have an author, works that are rather the product of language itself or of um, some combination of language and uh, uh, the, the, the conjuncture of possibilities within language and possibilities within narrative and possibilities within history and possibilities within society and possibilities of, obsess- of obsession within the human mind. And all of those potent possibilities will evolve ballads out of them. Um, ballads will evolve out of those potent possibilities. And so to talk about the speaker of the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, does that seem right or not? It's a way of saying, could the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner be a first-person story? And in a way, the answer is it couldn't, because then it wouldn't be a supernatural ballad. That the reason you need the wedding guest is so that someone can tell his story to someone else but the person telling the story is not the author of the ballad and the reason the person telling the story is not the author of the ballad is because it doesn't, it's not the kind of ballad that it should be if you think of it as having, a spe- let's say a speaker rather than an author, we know the author is Coleridge but it's not the kind of ballad it should be if, it, if you think of it as having a speaker, if you think. Um, oh, yes, I met this person um, who uh, told me the following story, but he was a real crackpot. Um, and he said there was a wedding guest and, a, and an ancient mariner, and here's what the mariner said to the wedding guest. He seemed to think it was interesting, and he's, he spent a whole lot of time on it, but I thought it was just wacko. Um, that's not... The whole point is that Coleridge is presenting us with something that in the fictional world in which this is a ballad, it's anonymous like any ballad. So even though it's written by Coleridge, what Coleridge has presented us is something that in the fiction of the world that he's presenting is an anonymous ballad. Whereas Wordsworth is rarely presenting us with anonymous poems. That's why Wordsworth, you know, you'd never say, well, Wordsworth, in giving us um, A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, is presenting us with an anonymous poem. He's not. He's presenting us with a poem um, by someone who loved Lucy, even though Lucy probably didn't exist. Um, In the fictional world, there is a poet, a lot like Wordsworth, Who is in love with this um, fictional character, Lucy, and who's describing, this fictional version of Wordsworth is describing how he feels about Lucy. But that's, so do you see the difference?
3: I think, like Christabel, for example, definitely doesn't have a known speaker to it. Yeah, yeah, say more. Like, it just, some of it, like, there's rhetorical questions in it that uh-huh. are just kind of, like, our thoughts. Or they're, like, right. the thoughts of the story itself, in a way. it's nice, story, beautiful, to, beautiful. The story, like, telling itself, kind of. Yeah. And, like, I, you can't even imagine that there's some kind of observer who's watching everything. It's just, stuff is happening. You know? Yeah,
1: and the observer, the only, the observer will appear in Christabel only to be very, very naïve. In other words, when the observer says something, what can ail the mastiff bitch? Perhaps it is the owlet's twitch. For what can ail the mastiff bitch? And of course, we know um, that there's something about Geraldine that is not um, kosher. I think is the word, <laughs> word Coleridge would have used. Um, but it's the 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 poem, the voice of the poem, is fits into the naive at that point. And that's because, in a sense, the voice of the poem is not the voice of a teller, but the voice, the, it's the guided voice of the listener um, re- reacting to it. Um, it's, this, this is one of the places where uh, we're very close to the strange perceptual psychology of communication or, um, but especially when, when it's in poetry or when it's in music which is the what's sometimes called entrainment where you are thinking the same thoughts as what you're reading where meter and rhyme for example will get you to do that will bring you along in a groove that they have created but then that it is the natural groove for you to stay in And, of course, we're not going to stay in that groove without constantly being guided and steered by the poem. But that guidance and steering is mostly meter and rhyme. And only after that is it... Well, it's the meter and rhyme that are making the plot then have a sense of inevitability to it. And some of it will take place as rhetoric, as rhetorical questions, as you're saying. So it's never going to be the case that a poem like that is going to say, here's something you don't know that you should now know, because then there's too great a separation between the experience of telling and the experience of hearing. And instead, it's the way ballads work is the experience of hearing is and the experience of it's an, it, it, the experience of hearing is the experience of um of the story itself rather than um, a convey than rather than the story is conveying information to you um, same is true in music the way maybe even more so in music which is that once a theme is announced then you're following along with the theme. Just think of any time you hear the Ninth Symphony or any earworm that you know, um, that following along with the melody that you know, you're not really following it. You're completely with it once you know the melody. It's not that, oh, yeah, then what's that next note? Oh, thank you for reminding me. It's that you're, you, you are going along with it completely. And that experience of being entrained in that way, of being in sync in that way with what you're reading or hearing, that's an experience that you can have in music and in popular music, especially. And it's an experience that you can have in poetry and in popular poetry, especially. Uh, you don't have it in novels, where sentences are always surprising you. And you probably don't have it in epics, but you do have it in ballads. So, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, that's another aspect of its being a ballad, is that it's a voice which is hard to distinguish from your own voice, is the voice of the narrator of that poem. And not that it sounds like you, it's that when you're reading it, you sound like it. And it's when you sound like it that you're feeling... Um, that that you're going along with it, and therefore you're feeling the anonymity. It's not someone you can locate outside yourself who you say is telling that story. But for the wedding guest, it is. For the wedding guest, it's the mariner who's telling the story. And maybe one way to put this is to say that the wedding guest is as much a character in the ballad as the mariner is. That is, when the wedding guest speaks, he speaks in the same rhythm and meter and form as the ballad. When um, the very idea of being the wedding guest makes him an archetypal character, just as the mariner is. And um, their conversations are conversations that characters and ballads have. So if the wedding guest in one sense represents the audience, in another sense, or in the if, if he represents the audience... He's also representing the fact that in a ballad, the audience is part of the voice of the ballad. The audience thinks in the voice of the ballad. The audience is in sync with the voice of the ballad, just as the wedding guest is in sync with the voice of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And that is what, as I say, makes it entirely different from something like the prelude. Nothing more different from the prelude than the rhyme of the ancient mariner can be imagined. And um, so going back then to um, all the other people on the ship, they're all punished. And part of the question, I, I don't even know how important a question, the answer, I don't know how important the answer to this question is, but part of the question about their punishment would be do they deserve it? Is there something that makes it the case that what happens to them, that it, this is not only a story about the Mariner, but that what happens to them is something they deserve, or if they don't deserve it, is it fair that they have to give up their lives so the Mariner can learn a lesson?
0: Well, first they take the Mariner to task. They're like, why'd you kill the Albatross? Right. And then a breeze comes up, and they're like, good job for killing the Albatross. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, like maybe... Yeah, it's like they, they don't want anything to do with it when it seems like a bad thing yeah. But when it seems like a good thing they're like we'll celebrate this and take advantage of
1: it yeah it's like they voted against someone um, because they didn't like his policies but then their um, retirement accounts went up and they had to admit that the stock market was going pretty well or something um, I don't know I'm just desperately searching for analogies I don't know where that one came from um but, yeah, it's that they support him. The question then becomes still, are they real people or are they just made into um, an all, all averred bird, that I, I had killed the bird that had made the breeze to blow? So is that allness of all the others, um, does that make them anonymous enough that we don't have to think about them as individuals? There are like two individuals in the poem, or if you include the hermit, they are three. Um, I don't know if you'd include the pilot certainly not the pilot maybe the pilot's son but the real individuals are the wedding guest and the mariner and everyone else is like um, uh, staffage in a painting just there to, to fill it in extras in a movie and there are a lot of you know the mariner's in trouble for getting all those extras killed but they are extras That could be one way of thinking about it. So, one reason to to imagine the wedding guest... So, structurally, the wedding guest is like the Wordsworthian figures in the Wordsworth ballads. Poetically, you might be able to imagine the wedding guest as Coleridge himself... Because you might, or maybe this is just a better way of saying the same thing, uh, you might ask, you might imagine the wedding guest as the person who writes the ballad down. That is the mariner tells him these things and the next day, a sadder and a wiser man, the next day um, he understands or has learned or has worked out everything that the Mariner has told him and he's haunted by it. And if there's one source for the existence of the record of the Mariner's story, that source has to be the wedding guest. So the wedding guest doesn't say, I wrote this, but the wedding guest is the person who could have written it, and then treated himself in the third person. And again, notice, though, that that is different from Wordsworth. Wordsworth is really giving you first-person experiences. And the Mariner's first-person experience is not what Coleridge is quite interested in. He's interested in our reaction, including his own reaction, to the Mariner's first-person experience. As as you probably know... um, Coleridge um, was addicted to um, yeah, we talked about this, to laudanum, which is a mixture of alcohol and opium and it was supposed to make you feel better about everything which it does for a while until you get addicted to it and then, it, like all addictions it's, it can be really, really horrible and Coleridge often composed in a state of inebriation that is he would take laudanum and did did you guys read the, read his note for kublai khan so all right we should did you read kublai khan all right let's look at kublai khan uh, that
3: one is really short though. yeah
1: I, I saw that one. it's yeah in Xanadu did kublai khan a stately pleasure dome decree that one um, Page, one, page 182, all of you who own books. So the poem begins on page 182, but Coleridge's headnote is one of those headnotes that's actually really, really important. So it's called Kubla Khan, or A Vision in a Dream, and um, that's because it is a vision in a dream, Um, Of the fragment and then he writes of the fragment of Khan. so it's not the whole thing It's just a fragment. The following fragment is here published at the request of a poet of great and deserved celebrity So what happened was Coleridge wrote this poem and didn't publish it because it's unfinished and um, Byron in around 1817 um, Lord Byron had become the most famous poet in Europe and uh his only rival was Goethe. And um he was um intervened in various ways to help Coleridge, who was impoverished and um partly impoverished because of all his laudanum. And um Byron got um helped Coleridge publish stuff, got publishers to ask Coleridge for his material, and was actually really, really um, generous towards Coleridge. Byron is is 16 years younger than Coleridge. So Byron at the time is about 25 and Coleridge is about 41 or 42. So um, the following fragment is here published at the request of a poet of great and served celebrity and as far as the author's own opinions are concerned rather as a psychological curiosity than on the ground of any supposed poetic merits. So Here, be interested in this poem because it's a psychological curiosity, he says. And then he goes on, very famous um, paragraph. In the summer of the year 1797, so this is 20 years earlier, the author then in ill health had retired to a lonely farmhouse between Porlock and Linton on the Exmoor confines of Somerset and Devonshire. In consequence of a slight indisposition an anodyne had been prescribed from the effects of which he fell asleep in his chair at the moment he was reading the following sentence or words of the same substance in Purchase, his pilgrimage. Um, so the anodyne, do people know what anodyne means? Um, it basically means something that makes you feel a little bit better and the anodyne here is laudanum. So because he's, he's got a slight indisposition, he's a little bit sick, he takes some wadna. Um, so he had read this sentence. Here, the Khan Kubla commanded a palace to be built in a stately garden thereunto, and thus 10 miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. So um, he was reading that sentence, which he's now quoting from memory, um, and he says, I fell asleep while I was reading that sentence. So we've all been there, right, Um, reading sentences, and then they become hypnagogic, and they make no sense, but they lead us to um, interesting dreams. So the author continued for about three hours in a profound sleep. So basically this is from the alcohol and opium, not from the boringness of the book. The author continued for about three hours in profound sleep, at least of the external senses during which time he has the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than from two to three hundred lines, if that indeed can be called composition, in which all the images rose up before him as things with a parallel production of the correspondent expressions without any sensation or consciousness of effort. So here's a description of Coleridge composing this poem in his opium-induced sleep. And notice that this is just the kind of entrainment that we were talking about in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is he has a dream, and the dream is um, a dream, like all dreams, a dream of things. But seeing those things in his dream um, is somehow producing in his mind their description their expression, and it's not that he is describing what he's seeing, it's that the things are producing their descriptions within his mind. So who's actually composing, is it him, or is it the objects in his dreams? And the answer to that is yes. What? The answer is, it is him or it is the object in his dreams, in the same way that the title is Moby Dick or the Whale. So the question, to the question, is the book called Moby Dick or The Whale? What's the answer? Yes. Exactly. Oh, I get this now. Okay. Yeah. It's a disjunction, as we call it in logic. So um, it's that, and you guys have probably all had this experience, or just imagine dialogue in dreams. You're inventing it, but you're also hearing it. If you talk to someone in a dream. Let's say this class yeah. turned out to be a dream. think about that then everything I'm saying is actually you'd be the ones responsible for it not me you so that's what's happening to him is that somehow his dream has a soundtrack and the soundtrack is the poem and so there's the visuals there's the things that he's seeing there's the history that the dream is about and then there is a soundtrack, and the soundtrack is the poem, and he's hearing it the way you hear a soundtrack, but of course it's his soundtrack. So if your dreams have ever had soundtracks, right? Is this familiar to everyone? At least once in a while. What do you mean? I don't know that you hear a song in a dream that doesn't exist. It's not a real song. Um, there are just the kind of the kind of things that are non-diagetic sounds in movies. That is sounds that are on the soundtrack but not coming out of the film world. Does that never happen to you in dreams? I think it wouldn't work in movies unless it happens in dreams.
3: Yeah, maybe it happens. I don't.
1: Maybe you don't realize that. Yeah, well, you usually don't realize it in movies either. Does everyone know what I mean by non-diagetic sound? Mm -hmm. It's like in a horror movie. Since we're talking about horror, Um, it's like the the naive young couple is uh, walking down a dark hallway, and there's kind of really tense music playing, and you might be thinking to yourself, fools, don't you hear the tense music? Turn around. Um, But of course they don't hear the tense music because it's um, what is now called non-diegetic sound. It's not in the world of the movie. It's only in the world of the audience. So that's how movie music tends to work. Is it something only in the audience world, not in the movie world? and yet it affects how we think about what's going on in the movie world. Otherwise, you wouldn't need it. Um, So, that fact about how movies work um, is probably an indication, it's, it's a really good, it's a telling fact about how the mind works, which is what we project onto what we are observing in terms of Resonance, emotional, um, some kind of correlative to whatever emotion uh, or anxiety that we're feeling. And um, we're the ones doing the projection, but what we're projecting is something that we then feel is coming back to us from that world. And that, that coming back, the coming back nature of it is that we are both, it feels like, composing and observing the thing that we've composed as spectators of what we've composed. So next time you dream, try to dream lucidly enough to notice yourself doing it. Or next time you wake up, consider whether that's just happened in your dream. Um, I think you'll see that that it does from time to time. So that's what Coleridge is describing here, that... Can it be called composition in which all the images rose up before him as things with a parallel production of correspondent expressions without any sensation or consciousness of effort? On awakening, he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole. So he thought he knew the whole thing. Not on awakening, he had a distinct recollection of the whole, but he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole. So you've had that experience too, right? Where you have a really good idea in a dream and you wake up and you say that was really good i'm really going to remember it this time this one time i'm going to remember this really good thought that i had that occurred to me in this dream and i'm sure i'm going to remember it and then two hours later all you remember is that you were sure you're going to remember it um so that's kind of where he is too so he thought he had a distinct recollection of the whole and taking his pen, ink, and paper instantly and eagerly wrote down the lines that are here preserved. So he writes these lines down because that is what he does remember. At this moment, he was unfortunately called out by a person on business from Porlock and detained by him above an hour. So the visitor from Porlock is now a famous person in English literary history the person who interrupted Coleridge while he was writing down Kublai Khan and um, there's even a book called The Visitor from Porlock and um, can one of you google it? The Visitor from Porlock just go, go to Amazon.com the completion of the great work Right, <laughs> and um, detained him um, above an hour and on his return to his room Found to his no small surprise and mortification that though he still retained some vague and dim recollection of the general purpose of the vision, yet, with the exception of some eight or ten scattered lines and images, all the rest had passed away like the images on the surface of a stream into which a stone has been cast, but alas, without the after restoration of the latter. So, without the um, after restoration. Of the stream so um, he then quotes um, then all the charm is broken all that phantom world so fair vanishes and a thousand circlets spread and each misshape the other stay a while poor youth who scarcely dares lift up thine eyes the stream will soon renew its smoothness soon the vision will return and lo, he stays, and soon the fragments dim of lovely forms come trembling back unite, and now, once more, the pool becomes a mirror." Um, so that's uh, another poem of Coleridge's about Narcissus. Yet, from the still surviving recollections in his mind, the author is frequently purposed to finish for himself what had been originally, as it were, given to him. So the poem has been given to him originally. And now he wants to try to finish it, but being Coleridge he can't um, Coleridge has an astonishing an astonishingly large percentage of Coleridge's good poems are unfinished, and this is one of them I do i i sorry I don't Um o which is um I will sing something sweeter today um, the uh, the final epigraph of the Intimations Ode, not the version that we read, but Wordsworth's later version, was a very similar line from Virgil, which is, um, let us now sing of, of greater things. Um, let, us, let us sing of, of um, more important things. So tomorrow I will sing a sweeter song, um, but the tomorrow is not come, is, is yet to come. As a contrast to this vision, I have an extra fragment of a very different character describing with equal fidelity the dream of pain and disease, and that's the poem called The Pains of Sleep, but here, then, is Kubla Khan, um, and um, I don't know if we actually, I mean, it's a great poem. Um, Yeah, I don't know that we actually have to read it right now, but um, do you want to? Was that a lookup? Okay. All right, start reading. We'll go around.
2: Uh, in Xanadu Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree, where out the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and here were gardens bright with sinuous rills. There <coughs> were <and coughs> many incense-bearing tree, And here were forest anci- forests ancient as the hills,
1: and folding sunny spots of greenery. Thank you. So in Xanadu, Kubla Khan creates this beautiful place, and um, everything about it is wonderful. Olivia, can you pick up from there? Yeah.
2: Um, but oh, that deep romantic chasm, which slanted down the green hill toward the cedar a savage place, as holy and enchanted as air beneath the waning moon, was haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm the ceaseless turmoil was eating, As if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a, might- a mighty fountain momently was forced amid whose swift half-intermitted burst, huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so... Um, he has this image of where Kublai Khan created the Pleasure Dome um, and then it becomes um, an image of the sublime a description of an imaginary but sublime landscape Um, and notice the supernatural there that it's um, a savage place as holy and enchanted as air beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover so, um, a place of supernatural events, women and demon lovers um, pick up from their aerial.
3: And these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momentally the sacred river. Five miles meandering with amazing motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns, measureless to man, and sank in tumult, in, tumult. tumult, sorry, to a lifeless ocean. Amid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesizing wars.
1: Thank you. So, um, again, it's it's amazing scene setting. Um, what is what scene is being said is not so clear. It's dreamlike in that sense that it seems very very focused scene setting, and yet it's not clear what, if anything, would ever happen there. Um, Ryan. The shadows of the Dome of Pleasure
0: floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare divides, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice.
1: Great. So, again, pure description. What happened to this two Ancestral Voices prophesying war, we don't know. Um, it's almost as though, I'm, well, it. Do you feel how dreamlike it is that you can, any two lines make sense um, as the beginning of a story um, or a place that a story is going to develop from, but it just stays pure description. And then he tells his, his own story, a damsel. A
3: damsel with a dulcimer and a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played singing of Mount Obora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight, t'would win me that with music loud and long it would build that dome and air. That I would build. I say I would build that dome and air. That sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honey you
1: hath fed, and drank the milk of paradise. Thank you. Okay, so what do you make of those last 20 lines or so? Not quite 20 lines, 18 lines, from a damsel to the end. Did he dream those lines? Yes. Why do you say that?
3: Because it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Um... (laughs) To me, at least, I don't know. I also just read it aloud, so I wasn't paying attention to what I was reading. But it sounded like a lot of
1: stuff. I don't know. Well, what if this were a um, no? You could, it wouldn't work as a, as a stand alone, as a stand poem. Um, but so, what's a dulcimer? I don't know. Anyone? A candy. No, are you thinking dulcet? I think of a Latin root. Yeah, um, no, it, it makes sweet sound. It's it's a string instrument.
2: Um, it's going to make sweet sounds. What is it? It's so weird looking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like... Yeah, yeah. I don't know what shape that is,
1: but it's that shape. <laughs> <laughs> it's a figure eight shape. Or it's infinity and beyond. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a standard... It's like a liar it would be a standard instrument for mythological song, for a song that we don't hear. Um, people still do play it. Um, you, can, you can go to, it's, it's especially, um, it, was, it was a hippie instrument um, in the 60s and 70s. Hippies uh, really liked to learn to play the dulcimer um, because it seemed cool. Um, but it's, um, uh, just imagine it as an instrument of very great sweetness of tone. So um, he sees an Abyssinian maid playing on her dulcimer and singing of Mount Abora. And he says he had a vision that he saw that. So if what difference does it make if that's part of the dream, which he says it is? He wrote down immediately the words that he had What difference does it make if that's part of the dream? Trying to think how to not um, distort the question. When did he have this vision?
3: It's in the past of his dream.
1: Okay, so, so say more.
3: Like, he, he's remembering it in his dream. Like, I, that, I, this happened to me in dreams before, like, where I remember something as though it had happened in the dream, but it had never happened even in the dream. Yeah. But it, it seems, like, common sense to me in the dream that it had happened, and I just completely forgot about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so does, every, does everyone... Has everyone had some version of that experience that is that sometimes in dreams there are backstories to what's going on in the dream? And... Right? Does this make sense? And if there's a backstory, then you don't dream that it's happening. It's like, so you meet the elephant who taught you soccer when you were in third grade, and you're surprised by how old that elephant has become. (laughs) So it's not that you dream that the the, 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 the elephant... You don't have a dream of the elephant teaching you soccer in third grade. You have a dream of an elephant who did teach you soccer when you were in third grade. And so there's a back, there's a past that, is, that was never in the present in the dream. So when you recount a dream, you know, what you'll often find yourself saying is, well, you know, I was at home except that there were 18 rooms in the house and it was built underwater and it didn't look at all like my house. Um, so how did you know you were at home Well, because in the dream, that was your home. And so um, here in the dream, there's a backstory, there's a past without a present. And so if he had had that vision in the dream, so you can, what he's doing is he's dreaming of a memory of a time when he had a vision. So look how many iterations or layers away from. The waking world, that is. He has now woken up and remembered a poem that he composed in a dream in which he recollects a vision that he once had in the dream world, So, which only occurred in the past tense, and the vision that he once had in the dream world was of something unreal because it was, the, it was a vision in a dream. It was a dream vision within the dream vision. It's a little bit like Inception, except more so. And that would then be mean that... Or, or how would that fit in with what we were talking about, the anonymity of ballots, when we were talking about Roman Ancient Mariner? Oh well
3: okay kind of I get this but it's something like the, the person in the dream is different from him in a way uh-huh. because like I, I don't think of myself as the same person as I am in my dreams like yeah
1: yeah so the person in the dream is different and what about what happens to the person in the dream that's something different than what happens to him in real life Yeah, or a way to put it is to say if you have a vision Um, you know just I hope none of us do but if you do have I I mean metaphorically it's fine you can have a vision, you can have a dream that would be a good thing Um, but if you actually have a vision like what he's describing here in a vision once I saw um, you know that's prophetic vision that's like a prophet going into a trance and then saying oh and then I saw um, or it's like what Blake does When he goes, when he sits in his backyard and goes into trances. So, if you have a vision, then we have a strong sense that what that means is you are imagining something. And there's the word imagine there is a very active verb. You are the one doing the imagining, you're imagining something. And you can be, you know, people say, huh, what an imagination. Or why are you imagining something so um, selfish? Or why are you imagining something so, um, um, so unlikely ever to come true, do your work, whatever? But we feel responsible for what we imagine. But are you responsible for something that you remember in a dream that you did imagine? Do you guys feel well? Let me ask a simpler question. Do you guys ever feel responsible for your dreams? Do you ever feel guilty about stuff that you've dreamt? Yeah. Does everyone? Ariel, are you just being I just don't diplomatically quietly li- at all?
3: Much so it. Last night like it was like really significant, so it's hard for me to think about it. I mean, I probably have.
1: Okay, you're probably lucky, um, <laughs> Olivia. I don't
2: know, I like really like third-person dreams,
1: if that makes sense, Yeah. Like, like an outside camera perspective, so it's like we're very different people, like dream me and real me. Yeah, okay. So not really. Yeah, maybe, maybe dream you is real Nicole and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> ever think of that? I bet not. Um, so, yeah, no, that's interesting. But, but if you, I don't know, some people sometimes feel guilty for what they've dreamt. Um, they wake up feeling guilty. And sometimes they feel really relieved. Sometimes you feel guilty because of what you've done in a dream. And, oh, thank God that wasn't true. And sometimes you just feel guilty for what you have enjoyed in a dream. Um, It's not So sometimes you feel guilty in the dream and then you wake up and it's really good that it didn't happen. Um, But sometimes you don't feel guilty in the dream, you just feel guilty waking up from the dream um, for having dreamt it. But at any rate... It's hard to think about finding someone guilty for a vision they once had, or finding them responsible for a vision they once had in a dream. That is, that's part of the backstory. Um, if, we, if we agree with, with Nicool, that this is part of what he dreamt, that he dreamt that he had once dreamt of a damsel, that he once had a vision of her. And that he now in his opium dream before it's interrupted by the man the the visitor from Porlock. Did you find the book by the way?
3: Yeah, it's called um, The Person from Porlock. Oh, okay. Um, it's by Robert Graves. It was written in 1959.
1: Okay, and there there are other books with similar titles too. So everyone know who Robert Graves is. Uh, the poet and writer, um, probably most famous now for his uh, book, his book "The White Goddess," which is um, a collection of Greek, Greek and Roman mythology and Egyptian mythology. Um, but he was a really great poet. Well, not really great, but do you like him? Yeah, I love him.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I Claudius is really good too. Yeah, I no, no, Claudius. He was a bit of a popular, so he said, but it's Yeah. Great. Yeah. It's really yeah. That's the one is. I. Yeah. White, the White Goddess. I feel as if I admit that, like, I read Robert Graves. Like, I'd get like kicked out of a Ph.D. program or possibly shot by firing
1: squad. No, really?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm just like paranoid. <laughs> I think if you were
1: getting your mythology from Edith Hamilton, maybe. But no, Robert Graves has because it's it's because because it's too simplistic or because it's so politically incorrect. Oh, just because it's so
0: weird. Yeah, like, but, I, but you I love, I, I, I,
1: you think you'd be kicked out of graduate school for liking weird things?
0: Well, I'm
1: joking. It's it's a it's an odd paranoid line. Okay. Um, no, I, I think he's really delightful. I yeah. just love. Her. Do you like Laura writing? Yeah. Yeah, I think she's amazing. Um, but he wouldn't yeah. have done the White Goddess without her.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. And it just feels if Robert Graves isn't taken seriously because he had he just was an odd character. But, yeah. Um, like Emerson says that Robert Graves invented the way I read things, which is yeah. to say Robert Graves invented new mm-hmm. criticism. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think anyone takes In the more like Jackson did these wonderful books on the poetry. Yeah. Um, yeah,
1: everything they did was great. Do you know about the time that she jumped out a window? No. So, they were at a party and she decided to jump out a window from the third floor. Um, not quite clear why was it? I think there was like some sort of love triangle. Yeah. Like as a... Yeah, but that was part for their course. Yeah.
0: She said that I just had to like break the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So it wasn't suicidal. It was just third floor window. She jumped out and he basically said, well, she can do it. I can too. And so he jumped out right after her and they were both laid up in the hospital for weeks and weeks. Um, so very interesting people. Uh, Laura Riding, who later called herself Laura Riding Jackson when she married a guy named Jackson, Skylar Jackson, and Robert Graves. Um, Anyhow, Robert Graves also has some really amazing anti-war poems. He fought in the First World War. And um, his first... He did fight, right? I'm pretty sure he did. So... um, Not sure why Robert Graves. Visitor from Porlock. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was the, he was our visitor from Porlock, Porlock in a funny kind of way. Um, so, oh, I get why he's a visitor from Porlock. <laughs> okay. So, um, so when he says, "Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight to win me?" that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air. So is he saying that awake, or is that still part of his dream? So remember, in his dream, he's somehow seeing what he's describing, which is the deep romantic chasm, um, the, um, uh, the stately pleasure dome, the sacred river, the caverns measureless demand. Kubla hearing ancestral voices prophesying war. All of that, we assume he's dreaming that, right? Can you can you interpret it any other way than that he's actually dreaming that?
0: Well, I, I take it as like this is his waking reflection on he's like I saw something so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it didn't make sense except for as a type of melody. Or a song. Yeah. You know, it's nice. not a literal image. Yeah. Um, and that it would be um, like I would, I would build that dome in air. Um, that's like a, a beautiful aspiration of poetry. Like I would build that dome yeah. in air. Yeah. Um, and it's always in the it's always a potential statement. Like I yeah it's like I, I have the perfect poem but yeah. it just disappeared. Yeah. And I'll try to conjure it up with melody yeah lost chord because this is the only part that does make narrative sense yeah. like, through the entire thing Like yeah. this is a um, yeah he's like I saw something and I would recreate it um, and, and so it's like a reflection on what's been forgotten
1: yeah so no I think that's certainly true the I think that the question is how seriously or seriously is probably the wrong word How um, deeply to take his claim that when he woke up he wrote down what he had already composed in his opium sleep. So that's what he says in the introduction in the note um, that he had two or three hundred lines completely done um, and that he started writing them down and then he was detained for above an hour by the visitor from Porlock and so, and this is all that's left. So that the claim that the frame of the poem is making. There's a frame narrative. Everyone know the term frame narrative. Chaucerians. What's a frame the narrative? <coughs> when
3: somebody in the story is telling a story.
1: Right. So I met twenty nine pilgrims. They were all going to Canterbury, and the host said, "Why doesn't everyone tell a story?" And so the night began. I met a traveler in an antique land who said what um, four something with
2: pillars in a desert with sands I not quite I don't remember it was. <laughs> two bass and truncless legs, legs yeah, <coughs> so, good. yeah.
1: Um, so yeah so a framed narrative is when someone says when you're getting a narrator a narrative that it, that is um, framed by another narrative um, probably I think maybe Heart of Darkness isn't taught in high schools anymore
3: mm-hmm. I
1: read for school okay um, so that's got a frame narrative remember they're sitting around talking Marlowe and the narrator and um, the friend of <coughs> Kurtz is intended and then that person tells the story to Marlowe and the narrator uh, that then becomes heart of darkness <coughs> um, so there's a frame which is them sitting around talking and then most of the book is the story that's told when they're sitting around talking Great.
3: Frankenstein, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. That is that you have um, um, the the ship's captain who first meets Frankenstein and then um, gets Frankenstein's story. Um, Walton gets Frankenstein's story, um, which he reports to his sister, and then Frankenstein <coughs> tells him the monster's story. So you get. Um, a narrative within a narrative within a narrative so the first narrative is can I find the Northwest Passage Um, the second narrative is Victor Frankenstein told me a story about why I shouldn't try to find the Northwest Passage and then the third narrative is and the reason I shouldn't find it is because this is what the monster told him about what had happened after he abandoned the monster and then we get the monster describing how he learned to read by (laughs) comparing his copy of Paradise Lost to what the old man was saying in the Hubble. Um, So those are frame narratives. Here the note seems seems to be a frame. And the frame is this poem is a fragment of what I composed in a dream. Should it be called composition? I think so, but it's a strange kind of composition because it happened, so to speak, visually um, or simultaneous with the visual. Yeah. No, you're not. You look like you ran uphill. Um, (laughs) So the, so, but let's call it composition. And then I wrote down these 40 lines or whatever it is, uh, 55 lines. And then the visitor from Porlock came and then I only had a few um, fragments left. And so officially, these lines are composed in the dream, or at least they are believed by the person who writes them down to have been composed in his dream. And the um, idea might be partly that you, if just as you would write down a dream. And when you write it down, you are the servant of whatever it was that happened in your dream. So it's like you're trying to tell the truth about something that happened rather than just making it up. And that's what happens when people write down their dreams is they try to tell the truth about something about which there is no truth. But the truth is something like, this is the experience that I had, and it happened to me rather than being my choice, which means that I have to try to write it down honestly in writing, in keeping a dream diary. So that's a little bit, if you think about it, it makes sense, but it's also a little bit spooky that there's a kind of truth which is entirely in your own mind and entirely made up by you And yet, there's a certain responsibility that you have not to make stuff up about what you've made up if you're trying to tell the truth about your dream. And it's that kind of responsibility that Coleridge is taking in in writing down the words that dictated themselves to him in his dream. And we already know that that happened because they're partly coming from purchase, that is from the sentence that he didn't write. Um, Here, the Khan Kubla commanded a palace to be built in a stately garden thereunto, and thus ten miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. Now, if you look at the um, footnote, Halmy nicely says, It is not clear which edition of Purchase is Pilgrimage by Samuel Purchase, uh, Coleridge's reading. Um, EHC quotes edition of 1626. In Zamdu did Kublai Khan build a stately palace encompassing 16 miles of plain ground with a wall wherein are fertile meadows, pleasant springs, delightful streams, and all sorts of beasts of chase and game. And in the midst thereof a sumptuous house of pleasure. Um, so Coleridge is remembering a sentence that he's reading. But he now quotes that sentence pretty inaccurately. It's clear what sentence it is. That is, that this has to be the sentence um, that he's referring to. But his quotation is pretty inaccurate. What it is accurate to is his own poem. So he, when he says... Um, a stately garden, 10 miles of fertile ground, all of those are essentially paraphrases of the poem, or those two things, not all of those. Those two things are essentially paraphrases of the poem. So now, on the one hand, you could say, which is something that Freud does say, that any words that um, that are specific in a dream, this is for Freud a principle of dream interpretation. Whether it's true or not, it's true enough that it's hard to prove it wrong. That if you hear someone say something in a dream or if you read words in a dream, if there's something you can quote from your dream, according to Freud, those words were actually part of your waking life the previous day. And so if someone says something to you in a dream, like, um, uh, you know, get the feck out of my way. Um, it meant that the previous day someone screamed at you because you didn't notice the light turned green or something like that. And in your dream, it can be used in a completely different context. uh, To give give Freud's greatest example, Um, and this is the most um, beautiful moment, I think, or one of the most beautiful moments in all of Freud, is in the interpretation of dreams, he describes in the last and longest chapter A dream, not that one of his patients had, but that one of his patients had heard about. And the dream is... Do people know this? The dream of the burning child? Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, can you describe it? You don't have to. Oh, there's... I mean, there's obviously
2: a a burning child, but the child says something to the the parent. It says something like, can you help me or something like that? Yeah.
1: So what happens is a child has died. And um, the father... After the child's death, the father who's completely exhausted um, in the child's last illness, um, the father is completely exhausted, falls asleep. Um, but before he falls asleep, he hires someone. There are people who will um, do vigils over, over corpses before they're buried. And um, it's a, the it's a kind of thing that you hire an old man to do, so he hired an old man to do it. And so this old man is sitting vigil and the father's in the next room and he falls asleep. And he has a dream. And in the dream, the child leaves the room and comes into his room and says to the sleeping father, can't you see that I am burning? Father, can't you see that I am burning? And a few seconds later, the father wakes up to see that the old man has also fallen asleep And hasn't noticed that one of the candles over the child's corpse has fallen onto the corpse and has burnt his arm. You know, so it's not a huge conflagration. But um, what has happened is what happens in dreams, which is that your cell phone goes off because you set the alarm and because you don't want to wake up, um, you dream that you're getting a call and you, you pick up your dream cell phone in your dream and say hello, and it keeps ringing even though you've already said hello and, and um, it shouldn't be ringing anymore. And then you realize it's an alarm and then you wake up. right. Do you remember doing that? No, no. I always wake
3: up before my alarm. <laughs>
1: yeah, because you don't want to yeah. hear the alarm. I always but you have, have you never had the experience of something outside becoming part of your dream?
3: Yeah, I think so.
2: I dreamed I fell off a cliff and I woke up on the floor. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's so cool. I woke up having fallen onto the floor. Wow. That's so... But in my dream, I rationalized that I was falling.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you're... Yeah. <laughs> so I woke to the to the third, but... Right. The dream, <laughs> but in the the dream, dream had in rationalized the sensation of falling for oh, two seconds. Yeah, yeah. All right, so yeah, that's what it does. It, it rationalizes something. So what the, one of the great things Freud says about that, he gives about a two-page analysis of that dream, and it's really um, beautiful. But one of the things that he says about it is that um, the words the child speaks um, have to have, some, have to have been spoken in the real world, because that's one of the principles that Freud discovered or thought he had discovered about dreams, that he could always, when his patients had a dream and they quoted something said in a dream, he could always get them to remember, if they thought about it, where those words had been spoken in real life the day before and that they realized that their dream was echoing something that was in their minds the day before. And so um, Freud realizes, and this can't be confirmed, he's confirmed this over and over and over again with his patients, but this can't be confirmed because he didn't know the person who had the dream, didn't know anything about the situation, but what he realizes is that the child must have had a terrible fever and said to its father in its fever, can't you see that I'm burning? That is you know, just feel my forehead can't you see that I'm burning? And that those words then in the dream get applied to the real fire burning the real corpse. But that that idea that words from real life appear in your dream um, and then become assimilated to your dream, that is, um, it's a powerful idea and a really neat one. And it kind of works here, which is that Coleridge says he's assimilating the words that he's read and purchased you know, Coleridge is a century before Freud, but he says that he's assimilating the words that he's read in Purchase. And, um, but it turns out that he's actually in real life writing this note for the poem. He is giving words to Purchase that Purchase didn't quite say. So he even says, I read, he was reading, that is I, was reading the following sentence or words of the same substance. And what that means is he looked for the sentence and couldn't find it, but he knew it was something like that. And what he's done now is he's taken dream words and claimed that he read them in reality. And that, therefore, the words that that spontaneously came to him dreaming, the... He dreamt of the substance of what Purchase was saying and simultaneously the expression, a parallel production of the correspondent expressions. Those happened in parallel. And in that parallel production of the correspondent expressions, um, the expressions that he came up with are then the expressions that after the fact, he ascribed to Purchase. So that the temporality uh, or the sequence of how things happen is he reads something in Purchase, he has a dream in which he dreams expressions, dreams words, dreams poetry, even as he's seeing what he dreams um, because all the images rise up before him as things. So clearly he sees the pleasure dome, he sees the caves of ice, he sees the sacred river, he sees all those things and the sentences the expressions come up as he's seeing them, he then says that the very things that he's dreamt come from purchase when they don't, or the things made but the words don't. The expressions come from his own mind, but he then gives them to purchase. And so that relationship of the waking world to the dream world is one in which the waking world itself Is in this preface in this note made into something which reflects the dream world because he dreams these lines and then he says yes these lines were in Purchase's pilgrimage when they weren't so now he's making a real book the dream image of his dream poetry so he's claiming so he's asserting And then, when we, let's again look at that last verse paragraph. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. So that could be a vision, that could be part of what he has dreamt. These could be the lines that he dreamt. If the thing arose before him, is it the damsel who arises before him, or the idea that he had a vision that arises before him? At any rate, if the dream can refer to and make things happen in the real world, then he might have had the vision in a real world as well. Um, Let me just put it one other way. If you didn't have the preface, if you only had the poem without any framing, then you would certainly think this last verse paragraph was not part of the dream. That is, he's saying, I had a dream, or we don't even know that it's a dream. Um, Here's something that I know about Kublai Khan. And it was amazing. And it reminds me of a vision that I once had. So So the first 36 lines are, here is something that I know about Kublai Khan, or here is a fact about Kublai Khan that's really amazing and um, now you know what you need to know about Kublai Khan and stuff that he had tried to do, and which I've now described for you. There's no claim here that he's dreaming. This is simply facts about Kublai Khan from Purchase's pilgrimage. Why is this interesting to me? Well, because I once had this vision. I saw a damsel playing a dulcimer, and... Her symphony and song was so amazing that if I could revive it, if I could bring it all back, not just remembering how I felt, but remembering what I felt, to quote Wordsworth, who says, The soul remembering how she felt, but what she felt, remembering not. Retains an obscure sense of possible sublimity So this seems to be Coleridge's version of that If I could remember What I felt Then I could do the same thing that Kubla Khan did And Everyone would be amazed by what a great poet I was And what a great thinker I was So the poem itself. It's clear that the relationship between the between the first thirty six lines and the end of the poem are one is an analogy to the other. Kublai Khan did this. I could do something which would be analogously just as great if only I could remember this vision. So, those last thirty, those last sixteen lines, or or um, yeah, sixteen lines are kind of like the inversion or the mirror image of the note because what he's saying there is, I once had a vision in which I heard an amazing song and unfortunately I can't revive it. But if I could, it would be like this real world thing. That Kublai Khan did, and in a way, that's the total. Do you guys know what photographic negatives are? You do, do you? you? Like, kind of. Okay. Vague sense of like what darkroom negatives. You don't know. Yeah, do you know what a negative is? No. You do. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those age things. Can you use a rotary phone? Yeah. Yeah, can you guys?
2: I think I've ever
1: tried, honestly. How do you know how to use it? <laughs> <phone? laughs> What's a rotary phone? What's a rotary phone? They want like this.
3: Oh cool.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, did you see that video those kids? Yeah. They couldn't figure they it could, out. Yeah, 17, two 17 year seventeen-year-old kids were given so four intuitive. minutes.
2: <laughs>
1: you, just do. You, you can put you your th- finger on it, actually, right? <laughs> <laughs> can you? See, it's not it it seems intuitive once you know. Do you but know just like <laughs> no, because you have used them. People who don't know how to use them can't figure it out. <laughs> That's
2: so wacky.
1: Um, so, they don't do darkroom class
2: anymore? You, if they you do, do oh, like, photography, like my sister did photography for a while and like, took a darkroom oh, okay. class. But like unless you are into photography, course. you don't learn that. Yep.
3: Yeah, I think yeah. my mom told me about darkroom. Would they have been from her tech? Yeah. How long ago are darkrooms from? They're still today. You, you can, yeah. yeah.
1: It's like vinyl records.
3: Oh, oh! you have vinyl records, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And oh,
1: that's why you like vinyl. Mm. Yeah. The show is great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so Annette, the way photography worked is um, that <coughs> film would respond to light. And the way it responded was, um, let's just take black and white for simplicity. The way it responded was that you would have a blank piece of film it would basically be transparent but if light hit any part of it it would turn that part I'm really going to simplify now it would turn that part black so light cooked film you could say a little bit of light would cook film but it would only cook the part of the film that it hit so what would happen is you would expose a frame of film to light through a lens And because it was coming through a lens, the light would be tightly focused, and so some parts of the film would be cooked more than others. And the brighter the thing that the camera was pointed to, or the brighter the region of the image that the camera was pointed to, the darker the film would become. So that if you took a picture, let's say, of this blackboard, since there'd be very little light coming from the black, the film would stay basically transparent. The part that the the black from the blackboard was focused on would stay basically transparent. The chalk, however, because it's white, lots of light would bounce off the chalk and hit the film and cook the film and turn it black. So on the film, you would have a black cylinder and another black cylinder where the other piece of chalk is and a slightly lighter... Um, black um, oblong here, black prism, is that what you call it? Um, And against what would essentially be a colorless background. So if you looked at it, you would get the opposite visual from what we get in the real world. The chalk would be black, the blackboard would be white. So how do you do a picture? How do you make a picture out of that? That's called a photographic negative. So the negative is all the light um, uh, values are reversed, are made into their negative. So how do you get a photo? How do you get a, a regular picture out of that? How would you do it if you had to? Develop it. Yeah, So, but (laughs) it's actually when you develop it that you see the black chalk and the white blackboard. You take a picture of the picture.
3: Oh, nice.
1: (laughs) So then, so you now have a picture with black chalk and a white blackboard, and you take a picture of that, and the black chalk looks white, and the white blackboard looks black again. So um, negatives are... Um, the reverse of the way we're actually seeing things, and then you reverse it again, and you go back to where you were. Um, so that's how film photography used to work. I didn't know
2: that. Oh, really? I didn't know that, that you couldn't get the real picture from a negative. Um, without you should... taking a picture. I didn't know you needed to take a picture of the negative.
1: Yeah, that's what um, that that's what uh, you do in Black Room. So if you know what a contact sheet is... Yeah. Um, so have you actually seen a contact sheet or are you just no, thinking just, of looking at Adobe? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm,
2: I'm thinking about
1: my school. I didn't take the class. Okay. I... So you, what you do is you get a strip of film and you put it on against a piece of, of photographic paper and then you expose the photographic paper through the strip of film and then you'll get the contact sheet um, and then it'll be back to, reversed again mm-hmm. to black, to white black rather than black and white.
3: Sorry, so in a
1: photographic negative, would then, like, would reds become greens and... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a movie by Maya Deren um, in which some of it is shown. She dives into a pool of water, and um, in the water, you see, the, you see her negative image. Um, so some of it's projection of the negative and some of the positive. She's one of Meryl's friends. Yes. In the... Nice. I Have really, you been looking at it? I've been yeah. li- looked at it and I saw the name. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's a real person. Yeah. Um, and was the first person to really study voodoo rituals in Haiti. Um, she has a great book called Divine Horseman about that. At any rate, um, you could see the last stanza of... Um, Kubla Khan as being the negative of the um, preface, or vice versa. That is, that the last stanza is that the, what what the preface says is I was reading something real, and then I had a dream. Um, and what the last stanza says is it wasn't a dream. Here was something real, but then I had a dream, um, and the real thing is, gives the words to the preface and to the quotation in the preface rather than vice versa. So, but it's a vision he once had and he can't revive it within him, but if he could, then every all should cry, all who heard should see them there, should see what he was building in the air. I would build that dome in air. Um, not, I would build the dome in air that I would not, I would build what Kublai Khan built, namely a dome dome in air, but rather I would build the dome that Kublai Khan built, but I would build it in air, unlike Kublai Khan who built it on ground. I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing light, his eyes, his, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread for young honey hath fed and drink the milk of paradise. So if I could do that, I would write a poem where everyone would think of me as a vision, not only a visionary creature, but also as a vision. So the point being, I want us to look at one other thing um, by Coleridge. Yeah, we have a little bit more time. Um, but the point being that the um, source of this poetry is something which Coleridge is not ascribing to himself, that he's really interested in a way that might be like Wordsworth or might be the opposite of Wordsworth. He's really, and it might be like Blake or it might be the opposite of Blake, He's really interested in ascribing the source and making himself someone who is aware of the coming of poetry, but not himself making it up. At least that's his poetic persona, is that he's not not making it up, it's happening to him. And it happens to him in a dream, it happens to him in a vision, And in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it happens in the form of a ballad. That this balladic thing happened. And for something for a balladic thing to happen, the world in some sense has to be the world of ballads, which is to say a literary world. A world governed, ruled over by literary form, by the form of the ballad. And That, I think, Nakul, is essentially what you were saying because for Wordsworth, the thing that rules over the world that way is nature. And it's not that, oh yeah, by ballad, really, what you mean is nature. It's that if you understand Wordsworth right, the way to understand it is to say, oh yes, by nature, what you really mean is ballad. That to say that the world is ruled by nature is actually to say that it's ruled by ballot and I think Coleridge is a good way to, to see how that's working let's just take a look at Christabel and um, we'll go, and I will go home and reread Michael um, <laughs> no, 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 no,
3: no,
0: I need to find yeah, it, it Yeah, 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 nice try um, <laughs>
1: I'm sure if you find it, it'll be like, oh, I guess I'm so dense. Because I'm sure it's like, I'm just Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What, what else? <laughs> um, so has everyone read Chris Bell? It's obviously way too long to read now. But if you haven't read it, you'll love it. I guarantee it. I, really, I don't. I really liked it. I haven't read it before this class. Here's my guarantee. If you don't love it, I'll give you a C in the class. That's my guarantee. I'm that sure you'll love it. That if you don't... <laughs> no, that's a cork. Um, <laughs> how about if you do love it? No, I can't do that either. It makes it too easy. Um, okay, it's a spooky supernatural poem. Um, fragment, naturally. Um, but what happens is... Uh, there is the lady Christabel who has gone out to um, figure out um, who her true love is going to be and um, she meets a strange lady out in um, by a tree outside um, and the lady, um, Christabel says it's page 164 or line 67, I started line sixty. Um, she goes to the other side of the oak. What sees she there? There she sees a damsel bright, dressed in a silken robe of white. Her neck, her feet, her arms were bare, and the jewels disordered in her hair. I was frightful there to see a lady so richly clad as she, beautiful, exceedingly. Mary, mother, save me now! Said Christabel. And who art thou? She says, I'm the red woman. Not quite. The lady strange made answer meet, and her voice was faint and sweet. Have pity on my sore distress. I scarce can speak for weariness. Stretch forth thy hand and have no fear, said Christabel. How camest thou here? And the lady, whose voice was faint and sweet, did thus pursue her answer meet. My sire is of a noble line, and my name is Geraldine. And she tells a story about um, where she's been. And Christabel says, here, come to my castle. Um, and they get to the doorway. Um, so now at line 120, a little door she opened straight. They crossed the moat and Christabel took the key that fitted well. A little door Nine she opened 20. straight. A little door she opened straight. All in the middle of the gate. The gate that was ironed within and without where an army in battle array had marched out. The lady sank, belike through pain. So they get to the doorway and then the lady sinks. Perhaps she's in pain, says the narrative. And Christabel with might and main lifted her up, a weary weight over the threshold of the gate. Then the lady rose again and moved as she were not in pain. So why does she seem to why does she sink at the doorway till Crystal carries her across the threshold? Horror movie aficionados. The lady is Geraldine. Yeah. Do you know about vampires and doorways? Did you never uh, watch? Oh, the references. Yes. Like that? Okay, that vampires
3: can't
2: go in unless they're invited.
1: Yeah. Vampires can't cross thresholds unless they're invited in. Okay. So...
2: So she has to, like, wait for Christabel to come
3: Oh.
1: Yeah. So Christabel has to carry her in. a
2: piece of trivia that came up in my life.
1: <laughs> it came up in your life? No, like oh. that. this just happened. Oh, yes, okay. You had to invite a yeah. vampire? <laughs> yeah. That's actually a
2: common occurrence
3: in Palo Alto, California. Yes.
1: So. <laughs> right near Sunnyvale, right?
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so in they go, and um, Chris gives Geraldine some wine, then um, they go to bed and to pray. Um and um, go to, um, there's one, um, yeah. Um, Geraldine says to Christabel, um, offers, sorry, Christabel offers Geraldine some wine that her mother made. This is now line 187. And then Geraldine asks, and will your mother pity me, who am a maiden most forlorn? Christabel answered, woe is me, she died the hour that I was born. I have heard the gray-haired friar tell how on her deathbed she did say that she should hear the castle bell strike 12 upon my wedding day. Oh, mother dear, that thou wert here. I would, said Geraldine, she were. I wish she were here. But soon with altered voice said she, off wandering mother, peak and pine, I have power to bid thee flee. So first she said, I wish your mother were here. And then suddenly she gets distressed. Geraldine does. Why do you think that happens? Mother comes to protect her daughter. daughter. From yeah. The vampire. Sorry? From, from Geraldine. From Geraldine. Yeah. I have power to bid thee flee. The narrative asks, alas, what ails poor Geraldine? Huh? <laughs> why stare she with unsettled eye? Can she, the bodiless dead, a spy? And why, with hollow voice, cries she, off, woman, off, this hour is mine, though thou her guardian spirit be, off, woman, off, tis given to me. So is kind of naive, just thinks, well, something's going on there, poor thing. Um, so... Um, They both kneel to pray, and then they get into bed. Um, And um, Geraldine um, is getting undressed, and Christabel um, can't fall asleep, so at line 256, so halfway from the bed she rose, and on her elbow did recline to look at the Lady Geraldine. Beneath the lamp, the lady bowed and slowly rolled her eyes around. Then drawing in her breath aloud, like one that shuddered, she unbound the cincture from beneath her breast. Cincture means belt. Her silken robe and inner vest dropped her feet in full in view. Behold her bosom and half her side, a sight to dream of, not to tell. So he doesn't describe what Christabel sees on Geraldine's body. And she is to sleep by Christabel? She took two paces in a stride and lay down by the maiden's side, and in her arms the maid she took, ah, well a day, and with low voice and doleful look these words did say. In the touch of this bosom there worketh a spell, which is lord of thy utterance, Christabel. Thou knowest tonight and wilt know tomorrow this mark of my shame, this seal of my sorrow. But vainly thou warrest, for this is alone in thy power to declare that in the dim forest thou heardst a low moaning and foundst a bright lady surpassingly fair and didst bring her home with thee in love and in charity to shield her and shelter her from the damp air. So that's the end of part one, and it looks like trouble. Then in part two, Geraldine meets Christabel's father. And the Baron, her father, really likes this beautiful young woman. And Christabel keeps feeling, there's something I should tell him about her, but just can't remember what. And um, Christabel's getting upset. And then a bard comes in, Bracey the Bard. And the bard is really not happy with Geraldine. And um, things are going badly and then the baron just go to line 610 page 178 why is thy cheek so wan and wild sir leoline so sir leoline is the baron christopher's father thy only child lies at thy feet thy joy thy pride so fair so innocent so mild The same for whom thy lady died. Oh, by the pangs of her dear mother, do thou know, think thou know evil of thy child? So, what's happened is Christabel has somehow, and Bracey are somehow trying to get him to not fall into seduction by Geraldine. And he's getting angry. That's what. And so his cheek is wan and wild. For her and thee and for no other, she prayed the moment ere she died, prayed that the babe for whom she died. Might prove her dear Lord's joy and pride. That prayer her deadly pangs beguiled, Sir Leoline. And wouldst thou wrong thy only child, her child, and thine? Within the Baron's heart and brain, if thoughts like these had any share, they only swelled his rage and pain, and did but work confusion there. His heart. Was cleft with pain and rage. His cheeks they quivered, his eyes were wild. Dishonored thus in his old age, dishonored by his only child, and all his hospitality to the insulted daughter of his friend, by more than women's jealousy brought thus to a disgraceful end. He rolled his eye with stern regard upon the gentle minstrel bard and said in tones abrupt, austere, I bade thee hence. Why, Bracy, he dost thou loiter here? I bade thee hence. The bard obeyed. And turning from his own sweet maid, the aged knight, Sir Leoline led forth the Lady Geraldine. So now the father is going off with the monster and Christabel is um, weak and upset and Bracey is banished. And then we get the conclusion to part the second. So each of the two parts of the poem has a kind of coda. And... Notice how the conclusion is um, a little bit like the opening of We Are Seven. A little child that lightly draws its breath, or a little child, my brother Jim, that lightly draws its breath and feels its life in everything What should it know of death. And remember, that was Coleridge's edition. So here we get a little child, a limber elf, singing, Dancing to itself, a fairy thing with red round cheeks that always finds and never seeks, makes such a vision to the sight as fills the father's eyes with light. And pleasures fl- so uh, what where does the intimation does that pick that up? The light upon his father's eyes. Yes, somebody's memorizing it. I
2: have, I have a little thing
1: now. All right with light upon him from his father's eyes, also Coleridge's child. So um, fretted with sallies of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes. So here is Coleridge that the little child makes such a vision to the sight as fills the father's eyes with light. And pleasures flow in so thick and fast upon his heart that he at last must needs express his love's excess with words of unmeant bitterness and that I think is just an astonishing moment in Coleridge that he's. this is clearly in some sense autobiographical that is what he has um, noticed in himself as a new father is that sometimes emotions turn into their opposites that you're so filled with emotion about a child that you can snap. And I think, again, it's, a, it's an odd experience that everyone has had and that we're always puzzled by when everything is going really well and suddenly we go into a rage um, out of nowhere and for nothing. Something thwarts us. Everything is great and then something thwarts us and we just blow up. Why? And call, that's what Coleridge is asking. Why? And his answer is is he must needs express his love's excess with words of unmeant bitterness. I think this is one of the most amazing psychological self probings that you'll ever find because he he doesn't give a reason for it. He just says, yeah, this is what happens. Perhaps tis pretty to force together thoughts so all unlike each other to mutter and mock a broken charm, to dally with wrong that does no harm. Perhaps tis tender to and pretty at each wild word to fill within a sweet recoil of love and pity. So maybe it's the angrier you get at your child, the more you know that you're wrong and the more you Therefore, feel pity for the pain that you're causing, and the greater your love. And there may be this strange mechanism of love leading to anger as a way of intensifying love. And again, just the next time you're in a real knockdown, drag out fight with someone you love, pause to notice if there might be something like that going on. Why do we want people that we love to cry when we're angry at them? That's the question the Coleridge is asking. Why do we want to make them cry? And, you know, an obvious answer is because that would be a concession that they're wrong, but it's not. People will cry when they don't think they're wrong. Probably more often when they don't think they're wrong. So it might be that we want to do that so that we'll remember that they're human and that hurting them is a way of reviving our direct experience of love. That's what he's saying. So perhaps it is tender to and pretty at each wild word that we express, each of our own wild words to feel within a sweet recoil of love and pity. And what if in a world of sin Oh sorrow and shame, should this be true? Such giddiness of heart and brain comes seldom save from rage and pain. So talks as it's most used to do. That is, what if it's just the case that most of the time, most of the intense feelings that we feel come from rage and pain. And when we feel something really intensely, we talk the way we do when we're in rage and pain. So we don't mean it, it's I love you so much. Um, but you scream it at someone because you're used to screaming at other drivers on the Mass Pike. And so when you feel intensely, your reflex is to scream. Um, but he's really puzzling out an experience that he really must be having and must have had, which is the experience of having this strange, ambivalent reaction to the innocence of his own child. So Freud says, it says, I'm gonna, there's one more thing we're going to do. Um, Freud says that um, among the greatest rages that human beings ever feel are a mother's rage at having to take care of an infant. That is, um, one of the ways that Freud reassured an enormous number of his patients was to say that he understood um, what they would never admit, which is that they sometimes hated their children, hated their infants, hated their helpless newborns. And what he said to them is, in fact, that's not a bad thing because your reaction to hating this child that is demanding everything from you and um, requiring you to give everything that you have, no matter what, no matter how tired you are, no matter how terrible things are, your reaction of anger and rage has a counter-reaction of absolute self castigation and an absolute return of love, like the sublime, the love comes flooding back out of guilt. So for Freud, he says, perhaps the finest flower of maternal love comes out of guilt at the rage of the demands made upon you. And that that creates love, far from being the opposite of love, it's, the, it's inextricably, um, love is inextricably bound up with it. And that without it, parents would not love their children as much as they do. And so I think Coleridge has a similar, is making a similar, has a similar idea here. Okay, one thing that I wanted us to look at um, is this poem by Anna Letitia Barbo um, to Mr. S.D. Coleridge. So Barbo, if you read the notes to The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Barbo is the person who said she liked the poem but it had no moral did you notice that at the end? it's a really important note Um, Coleridge uh, talked about this later so um, Barbo is she was um, one of the most popular poets of the day the first woman to make her living as a writer
3: did we read something from
1: her? in the other class yeah Yeah. washing day I think we read yeah something like like yeah. I could be forever <laughs> yeah um so if you go I'm sure you guys who are who are um who forgot your books today <laughs> are um can find this as well but um are you looking at the note? because I have yeah to... it's page 114 is it 98 oh sorry page 98 um Right, was the wrong poem. So, yeah, the note is, um... Mrs. barbel told me
2: yeah. that Go the ahead. only faults she found with the ancient Mariner were that it were, uh, were that it was improbable and had no moral. As for the probability, to be sure, that might admit some question. But I never told her that in my judgment the chief fault of the poem was that it had too much moral and that too openly obtruded on the reader. It ought to have had no, moral, more, uh, no more moral than the story in the Arabian Nights, the merchant sitting down to eat dates by the side of a well and throwing the shells inside, aside and the genie start, uh, starting up and saying he must kill the merchant because a date shell had put out the eye of the genie's son.
1: Yeah, so um, that's great that Coleridge thought that the problem with throwing the Age mariner was there's too much of a moral in it, that um, it was too much a story about um, how to be a better person. And that he wanted it to be just strange.
2: Well, he, he kind of, there addresses what we were talking about with the, how, why, everyone, why is it okay for everyone else to exactly. punish that too. Because exactly. He, he would have rather his story had the same morals as that Arabian Nights story. Yeah. In which it's just retribution. Right. And it's not even just.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But just fascinating. Yeah. Like a ballad. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what he couldn't quite do. So when Coleridge was 25, um, he'd met, uh, he really liked um, Barbo, and he met her, and um, she was very impressed by him. And she wrote, Remember, he's right now, he's he's a very famous 25 year old, but he's a 25 year old. That is, he's famous, but partly because he's so promising. Um, And uh, so her poem to him, to Mr. S.T. Coleridge. Midway the hill of science, after steep and rugged paths that tire the unpracticed feet, a grove extends. So, halfway up the hill of knowledge, that's what the hill of science is. A grove extends, entangled mazes wrought and filled with strange enchantment. Dubious shapes flit through dim glades and lure the eager foot of youthful ardor to eternal chase. Dreams hang on every leaf, unearthly forms glide through the gloom and mystic visions swim before the cheated sense. Athwart the mists, far into vacant space, huge shadows stretch and seem realities, while things of life, obvious to sight and touch, all glowing round, fade to the hue of shadows. Scruples here, with filmy net, most like the autumnal webs of floating gossamer, arrest the foot of generous enterprise, and palsy hope and fair ambition with the chilling touch of sickly hesitation and blank fear. Nor seldom indolence, these lawns among, fixes her turf built seat and wears the garb of deep philosophy and museful sits in dreamy twilight of the vacant mind. So, what's that echoing? 18th century people? Dreamy twilight of the vacant mind. Movie titles. Function. Yes. Pope? Pope, yeah. Yeah, so she's echoing Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, which is, as you will all remember, a line from Pope. Um, which poem? Eloise of Abelard. Oh. Yeah, so um, purely accidentally, there's a movie of the same title. Totally uh, unrelated. Sorry? Totally unrelated. Yeah, totally unrelated. There's a movie of the same
3: title, what? Eternal <laughs> Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, uh-huh. Charlie Kaufman
1: movie. I, a good movie. It's a really <laughs> good movie. Yeah. So, um, but she's, she's thinking of that. And this is the opposite of um, Eloise's Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind is in dreamy twilight of the vacant mind, soothed by the whispering shade for soothing soft the shades and vistas lengthening into air with moonbeam rainbows tinted here each mind a finer mold cute and delicate in its high progress to eternal truth rests for a space so she means Coleridge's mind
3: wait sorry so is she the Abelard to his Eloisa nice
1: good yeah
3: because she's the older
1: one right yeah yeah she's um, uh, she was born in in uh, 45 and um, does it not say here She's either, yeah, she was born 47, maybe not 45, but anyhow, in the 40s. So she's almost 30 years older than he is. She's now in her mid 50s, and he's in his mid 20s when she writes this poem. So um, here each mind, a finer mold, acute and delicate in its high progress to eternal truth, rests for a space in fairy bowers entranced, and loves the softened light and tender gloom and pampered with most unsubstantial food, looks down indignant on the grosser world and matters cumbrous shapings. Youth, beloved of science, that is Coleridge, she's addressing Coleridge again, youth, you young man, beloved of science, that is of knowledge, of the muse, beloved, not here, Not in the maze of metaphysic lore build thou thy place of resting, lightly tread the dangerous ground on noble aim's intent, and be this Circe of the studious cell enjoyed, but still subservient. Active scenes shall soon with helpful, healthful spirit brace thy mind and fair exertion. For bright fame sustained, for friends, for country, chase each spleen-fed fog that blots the wide creation. Now heaven conduct thee with a parent's love. So she's worried. This is before he's become hooked on Laudanum. She's worried even at the age of 20, when Coleridge is just 25, that he's gonna be what he becomes, which is this person who can't finish things, who has these amazing visions, who is um, just entangled, in his own visionary powers and aspirations but without quite the ability to break through um, and do what she wants him to do which is a certain kind of uh, literature of moral clarity. And so she gets him right and she also gets right what tormented him all his life uh, which was his inability to break through um, and to finish things. But she also um, wants him to be something that if he had be- become that person, would have been no- of no interest to us. Um, what's interesting is also what's, what's hobbling for Coleridge. But he's hobbled by the, the powers and depth of his own vision. And um, Maybe if he had done what she wanted him to do, he would but probably not, and we have Wordsworth, so that's good. All right, and we also have Blake. So now we've talked about everyone, and we all we understand early Romanticism, and now only later Romanticism remains for you. So thank you, guys. Have a good summer. Um, thank you. It was a pleasure, and um, see some of you in the fall. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, I may. You gave me your paper and I put it down somewhere and I think I know where, but I may have to ask you to send it to me again. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Uh, When do you want? Um, When you can. There's no huge rush unless you're graduating. which no. You're graduating. I sent your paper, though. Yes, you did. Um, But unless you're graduating, there's no huge rush. Oh, I was talking about the recitation. Oh, do you want to do it now? Sure. Okay, good. Anyone else reciting? I, well, you're
0: not, we're not doing them together. Um, do you want to do it? Well, I was going to if we were doing them, but if it's
1: just in your office, I don't know. If that's oh, on. no, no, no. So you, you were, the grad student didn't have to do it.